0: In chapter 2, I have in the bulletin chapters 2 and 3. We will not go through chapters 2 and 3. I'm only going to be reading this morning through verse 7 of chapter 2. I get so excited about this, I bite off more than I chew can chew, and then once I get into working it out, I have to slow down. I like studying scripture texts, I like studying Bibles, in the books in the Bible that challenge me, and I hope they challenge you. We are to seek out the Lord's wisdom and knowledge and understand his truth. And Revelation has always been a mystery to so many Christians, and I'm just trying to bring some sense to it all. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1 To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore. From where you have, have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at, la- at first. If not. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Permit me to pray once more before we move any further. Lord, bless us these next few minutes as we read look into this text. There is so much here and not enough time to see it all, but expose our hearts to challenges before us. Expose our minds to your understanding and wisdom that we may live in knowing how we are to live for you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In a book entitled The Eye of the Storm, Frank Kosh tells about a personal account that he had while he was in the Navy. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the head battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported light bearing on starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. The lookout replied, steady captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change your course 20 degrees. Back came the signal advisable you change advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, "Send, I'm a captain, change your course 20 degrees." The response came back, "I'm seaman second class. Change your course 20 degrees." By that time the captain was furious, he spat out, "Send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees." The response came back. I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) We changed course. What I would like to see this morning springboarding off that illustration is what we have looked at in, in the book of Revelation so far about the authority of Christ in response to the persistent problem of sin in men and then there is a wise solution to it all. So eternal authority, persistent problem, and a wise solution. Revelation begins with the appearance of the risen, glorified Son of God. We've already looked at that several weeks ago. Revelation 1.14 describes the Lord himself glorified. The hairs of his head were white like, like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This was not some space alien that John saw. This was the presence of the Lord himself. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. Now he's describing himself, but listen carefully. Look into the words of what he is saying. He is speaking about his authority and his eternality. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's giving testimony about a lot, a lot of authority that he has in his hands the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Lord of glory. So he appears to John with a message that comes with authority. Brothers and sisters, he is our lighthouse. And that's diminishing in describing him, but it helps us to see it. He does not change. He is the first and the last. He never changes. His word is forevermore. He is forevermore. This is a constant point of reference. If you ever want to know how far off course you might be, then you check with the Son of God and you check with his word. He appears. When he appears, he is walking, according to John, among seven golden lampstands. And he is holding seven stars in his right hand. And you remember that those lampstands represented seven churches. They are about to get some letters. The seven stars in, her ha- in his hands represented the seven pastors of those seven churches. And we assume that since they were in his hands and he's described them as stars, that they were faithful ministers who were teaching, preaching to churches that were struggling and maybe not so quite faithful. The letter seven in scripture has very special significance when the bible speaks of mentions anything in sevens is the bible is talking about completeness whole totality absolute entirety full perfect lacking nothing we look at the account of creation in the beginning god created all things in 6 days and on the 7th day he rested Complete, full, total, nothing lacking. God rested. In Revelation, we will be looking at seven seals, talking about his authority. Seven trumpets, talking about his judgment. Seven bowls, talking about his wrath. And there are so many other sevens in the book. We're going to open all of that up once we get there. But we want to see that seven, in this case, is important in that it is, when he's speaking about seven churches... It's not just individual churches. I believe he is talking, called this for a lesson for all the kingdom of God, every church that's ever existed. We read this, we apply it to our own lives, our own ministries, and we find out how far we've wandered off course from our light. At the beginning of each message to the seven churches, the authority of the divine messenger is declared. I keep wanting to emphasize this because we, particularly we in America, don't have much respect for authority, and I think it bleeds into our Christianity. And the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, which, mm, that doesn't apply to me, but it does. So when he comes to these churches in, in authority, he makes a statement of who he is. In Ephesians 2 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a statement of authority. Ephesians 2 1, to the church at Ephesus. For Smyrna, it was Ephesians 2 8, the latter half of the verse. Pergamum 2 12, Thyatira 2 18, Sardis 3 1, and Philadelphia 3 7, and Laodicea 3 14. All, maybe not the same words, but all making some statement, declaring to these individual churches, this is coming from the Lord, your God, your Savior. So this is important. Pay attention. Again, at the end of the seven messages, there's a clear call for wisdom. And each call for wisdom is the same. Every, all seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see that in chapter 2, verse 7, 211, 217, 220, 3.6, 3.13, and 3.22. Why are the Christian churches called to be wise? The churches must realize that according to the Word of God, they are off course. The Christian The individual Christian must also realize that he or she is often off course. We can take the lessons that are applied to these churches and kind of lay them over our own lives and see how far am I off course? Also, seven times Christ Himself tells the churches, I know your works. We see that in two verse two, two verse nine, two thirteen, two nineteen, three one, three eight, and three fifteen. I know your works. I was wondering the other day, most of us my age, and maybe a little younger, grew up in school under the threat of the permanent record. How many of you remember what that is? We were told in school, you better behave yourself. Don't do anything bad. Don't do anything wrong, or we'll put it in your permanent record, and that record will follow you for the rest of your life. I don't know if school teachers do that. Do they? Is that used as a threat to hold over their head? Of course, everything's on the Internet now, so it might not apply. I'm going to share a personal story. about Bob, these are not real names, Bob, I'm going to call her Karen because that was what her personality was, and myself. I was in the fourth grade. So this was a long time ago. And every year we learned folk songs in the fourth grade. And there was one particular folk song that we learned. It was about a medicine man, a traveling uh, snake oil salesman. And it was one of the old folk songs that no one ever heard before. And I don't know why, but I, I can still sing it today. I'm not going to sing it. It was a silly little song. It seemed like everybody enjoyed singing it. But the words were, oh, I am Dr. Ironbeard, twilly Willy wit boom-boom. I cure all ills with healing art, twilly Willy wit boom-boom. And there's a little chorus that goes on after it. This Bob that I mentioned was one of my classmates, same age as me, fourth grade. And he was good looking, he was athletic, everyone liked him. He had a personality. And whenever we would get out for recess on the playground when the teacher wasn't round, he would sing this song and change one little word. And that word rhymes with wit. And all the kids would laugh. Because he had all the personality, he had all the good looks. He had all the social influence of this fourth grade. Well, one day Bob was sick and didn't get to school. and We went out for recess and I wanted to be popular. I wanted to make everybody laugh. So I sang this song just like he sung it. And this other classmate in the fourth grade, whose name was Karen. Now remember, before, whenever he would sing this song with this improper word, everyone would laugh and think he was so cute. I sang it, and all of a sudden, Karen said, <gasps> David Kinney said a dirty word. I'm going to tell the teacher. What? Nobody laughed. Everybody laughed when Bob did. Nobody got upset about that. I'm going to tell the teacher. And I had a talk with the teacher that afternoon after school. And I remember, I mean, she was very gracious. She made me say what I said. And I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And she said, David, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to put this in your permanent record, but all I'm going to write a dirty word. That's, I'm not going to do what you I wish I could say that's the worst thing I ever did in my life. But it was a mark on my permanent record. I was embarrassed, ashamed. What if someone else finds out I might not be able to get a job ever? Christ tells the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he tells them, I know your works. And we read words like that, and we are usually comfortable. As Christians, we're comfortable. the Lord knows me. That's so wonderful. Wait. He knows me. He knows everything. I have too much shame. He knows me. And the Lord is telling these churches, I know your works. And nearly every one of them, when he counsels them, he counsels them where they have wandered off course. And he calls them to repentance. Why are we never concerned that he knows us? Why are we never ashamed about the sin that's in? Why do we continue committing sin? If he knows us, why do we deliberately, we don't wander, we change course very often just to stay away from him and out of his light? Why is that? The letters to the seven churches are warnings straighten up, or this is going to be on your permanent record eternally. That's something we, looking at the authority of the Lord who brings this message, that's something we need to consider with some Now, I told you last time we were in Revelation, we can't tiptoe through this book. And some of you might be first-timers here. And I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm calling attention to all of our hearts and minds to what is before us. Now, uh, he tells us good things about the church at Ephesus at first. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So fa- they make sure that the word is being brought faithfully. When they come to worship, they know who is telling the truth and who is not. They have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus itself was a place that had been striving to remain diligent to the Lord. The church itself, excuse me, the church was striving to remain diligent to the Lord because Ephesus was a very... Difficult city to live in. It was an idolatrous city to live in. And John even mentions an example in verse 6. After he gives some corrections, he brings a little bit more grace back into the conversation. And we'll look at the correction in just a moment. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who were the Nicolaitans? We can't be sure. This is the only place they're mentioned in Scripture. There is some speculation. In Acts 6, verse 5, when the deacons, the first deacons were being selected to help the church meet the needs of those Who were poor. There were deacons chosen. There was Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Some speculate that Nicholas began well in his Christian faith and his Christian walk and became a preacher. And then led people astray in apostasy and improper teaching. That's one viewpoint. It is also possible, if we look at the root word for, or the root, the Greek root for the name Nicholas, Nicola, it means let us eat. It could have been someone teaching Christians to, and I believe he's using a euphemism here, encourage Christians to eat things offered to idols. At Ephesus, there was a temple. We've, when we studied Acts, we talked about this some. At Ephesus, there was a temple If you were Roman, you would call it Artemis. If you were Greek, excuse me, if you were Greek, you would call it Artemis. If you were Roman, you would call it Diana. But this was an idol, a goddess. If anyone came to worship, they would very often be offered an opportunity to, and we would not call this worship, we would call it perversion. You would bring a sacrifice, and then this perversion would take place. And it was sexual, but it was offered as worship. I cannot go into detail because it's quite obvious. So when John is talking about this as they were encouraged to eat things offered to idols, he's talking about participating in that kind of perversion as worship. And God said, I hate it. So that's where the Nicolaitans were. But as you recall, the Lord is giving compliments. He's encouraging the church at Ephesus. They have been Proving those who were true and testing those who were true. Making sure that there was no apostasy coming into the church. They even hated those who were teaching it. But he says, this one thing I have against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. We've talked about the eternal th- the authority of Christ and his message coming to the church. And here we're talking about a persistent problem. And each church has its own identifiable persistent problem. And the one at Ephesus is that they have abandoned their first love. You have a tendency to be lured away. If we pause here and observe the course of the modern church we can see how she has been lured away. In the mid to late 19th century, there were seminaries in Europe and in America that began to question the authority of the Scripture. The Bible is not inerrant, it is not infallible. The inspiration of Scripture is definitely in question. We cannot consider it as inerrant. The doctrine of Trinity, that's not even in the Bible. The word's not there. So how can we know that God is one in three? That began over 150 years ago. And all along, every time there was a compromise with Scripture, compromise about what what we know and believe about God, every time there was some course change, apostasy increased in the church. And you can see now... What we have in the church today. We are disgusted. We are discouraged. We are, how did this happen? It's been going on for nearly 200 years. The issues are abundant in the church today. The church has changed course deliberately. And we are called to be faithful. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are some charismatic churches, you've probably seen the signs they're participating over the last few years in this campaign. Love God, love people. And there are some commentaries who say that this, where this is coming from, that your first love is to love God and love people. Well, if you love God, you're going to love people. I believe that the first love of the church, according to the Lord himself, It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's your first love. Love for everyone else will come as a natural consequence of that. So he's not rebuking the church for not loving people. He's rebuking the church for not loving him. Most of us remember the passion we shared with our spouse when we first got engaged and were first married. That was exciting. That was wonderful. But then we get into life where we have to go to work and we have children and all the drudgery and the mundaneness of life just kind of throws a wet towel on it all. It's not that we don't hate one another, though some eventually do, but even in the good marriages, it seems to cool down. And it's in those times where you can be tempted to wander if you don't keep the passion going first. If we wander astray and let our self-change course to where we think we should love people first, we are really loving a man-fashioned idol, and we're only calling that God. We must love God first. He must be first in our lives. Then everything else is a consequence. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14 through 16 Behold, to love the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. And he uses words that are a little uncomfortable for us. Circumcise your heart. And stiffen your neck no more. Keep your heart for the Lord tender and passionate and sensitive that's what he is saying eternal authority persistent problem wise solution the wise solution repent and I know you've heard preachers talk about this before repent the Greek word is metanoia It means to change your mind. I've been rereading a book by Mark Buchanan called The Rest of God. He shares some words that are helpful. Any deep change in how we live begins with a deep change in how we think. The biblical word for this is repentance, metanoia, a change of mind. Change begins with fresh eyes. In other words, it begins with an awakened imagination. You turn away stubbornly and without apology from that which formerly entranced you and you turn toward that which once you avoided. You start to see what God sees and as God sees it. But that takes more than will. It also takes imagination. We need to repent. We need to change our minds. He continues by using another example. When I married, I had to change my mind about who I was. I was no longer a bachelor. My habits of thought had, for more than 20 years, taken shape around the fact that of my singleness. I had bachelor attitudes about how to spend time and money, about how the ideal color to paint a bedroom, about the best car to drive, about other women. It had all It all had to go through a dramatic shift. In some cases, a complete about-face when I took vows. Actually, the change began a long time prior to that and continues life long. I had to, I have to, change my mind. And then he says this clearly bright statement. But if I changed only my mind and never changed my behavior, I doubt I'd still be married. I have needed at every turn practices that embody and rehearse that make real my change of mind. We talk about repentance Every time a good preacher stands in the pulpit and calling his people to repent, change your mind, your behavior, better follow in course. Set your life your eyes and your heart on the lighthouse of God's word and his truth and his son, your Savior, and constantly check yourself. And may often agree or two, I better get back because we will wander. As a hymn writer once wrote, "O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the Lord I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the truth of God's scripture. And we pray that as we bow to his authority, as we repent of our persistent problem, that you would continue to use us according to your word and your will, continue to equip us and sanctify us and make us into the image of our Lord and Savior, that we may rejoice together. It is in his holy name we pray. Amen.